there's going to be another version of RIM, like RIM Pro or whatever he's going to call it. What if the next level could be where the money would go back to the engineer, where you knew what plugins he used on that session and the actual setting on that sound. And then you could go and download that thing and then yeah. practice. It's a great way to learn at my level or somebody new coming up in the business that wants to have something to do on a weekend. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. Sending your music to be mastered can be scary, but sending your music to a total stranger for mastering can be really scary. Chris Graham is a Billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer with thousands of credits and knows how to make your record sound fantastic. But more importantly, he understands that there is one person that really knows what a great record sounds like, and that's you, rock stars. So if you're thinking about hiring professional mastering but not sure if it's right for you, go to chrisgrammastering.com and get a free sample mastering of your song. Go find out just how great your record can sound at chrisgrammastering.com. Just click the link included in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Kevin Becca, a recording engineer for over 25 years, working with the top names in the music industry, including Kenny G, Quincy Jones, Michael Bolton, George Benson, George Lynch, and many more. Also an experienced educator, Kevin is currently the co-director and an instructor at the Blackbird Academy in Nashville, Tennessee. He has taught advanced recording at Belmont University, surround recording, and a lecturer at the Danish Rhythmic Music Conservatory in Copenhagen, Denmark, and was creator of education and an instructor at the Conservatory of Recording Arts for over 10 years. As a journalist, Kevin has worked as editors of the Pro Audio Review and Audio Media USA magazines. And since 2003, Kevin has been the technical editor of the industry-leading Mix Magazine, where he writes features, product reviews, and a monthly column. Kevin is also a voting member of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, NARIS, the Country Music Association, CMA, and the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, ASCAP. If you heard my interview with Gabri Waddell of Soundways.com, then you might be familiar with the RIN M plugin designed to let you gather all your music's metadata while you work from your DAW. Kevin introduced me to Gabri and the RIN M this summer at NAM and wrote a free book explaining how to use RINM, which we're going to discuss today. Stay tuned, because later in the show, I will show you exactly where to go download your free copy. Please welcome Kevin Becker to Recording Studio Rockstars. Kevin. Hey. Are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Let's go. Oh, awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much for coming here. Took us a moment to get ready this Saturday morning, but it's a beautiful, gorgeous fall day here in Nashville, Tennessee, and 
I'm glad to have you here at the studio. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So um, I've given an introduction of you, but uh, tell us and fill in the gaps in your own words. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you got into all this. Well, I um, when I was 10 years old, I started taking guitar lessons and I was always interested in music and that was my focus is to be a musician. So I was uh, playing in bands through high school and then in through a couple of years of college and then this was all in Arizona in the Phoenix area. So uh, afterwards, after I kind of played out all the resources there, I moved to Los Angeles and a buddy of mine had moved there the year before. So we shared a house together. His focus was to be a recording engineer. So he was working at Westlake Audio. So we got to go in there and record off hours. And I got to kind of live vicariously to the people he worked with, which were a lot of the top names in music and a lot of the great session musicians at the time in the 70s. So, um, And then I got interested in um, recording engineering after building a couple studios as a construction worker with the guy that lived there that I met through my friend. And I started working as an assistant at one of the rooms I helped put together. So, and then I just started working long weeks and learning, you know, I wasn't doing any other work. I put down the guitar and just dedicated all my time to being a recording engineer, just, uh, you know. So you went from Phoenix and the Arizona to LA? Yeah. First stop? Yeah. And then I ended up staying there for 18 years. So I went through the 80s in Los Angeles was an incredible time to be there. Yeah. Did you happen to know the band, the Meat Puppets, that were also from Phoenix? I knew their name. I never worked with them or anything. And there's some other great bands that came out of Phoenix at the time. And there's some really good musicians there, too. It's yeah. Cl- it's well, I had Derek Bostrom, their drummer, on the podcast previously. So we got to talk a little bit about that. Well, so very cool. So then you've you know now become an experienced engineer and producer and, you know, you've made many records, but you've also gone into the education field. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you, your your career path with teaching and also writing as an author. Well, that was kind of, it's interesting because in 94, after the LA earthquake, I ended up having to move out of Los Angeles through a series of events, losing a house and going bankrupt and all these kind of negative things that happened in a disaster. So I you moved literally back. lost a house in the Well, earthquake. yeah, it was it, it was a, it's a long story, but what happened was we had to walk away from a mortgage that was going to double because of a a lien on the property to repair the damage for wow. the earthquake. So it was just an unaffordable uh, kind of a thing for us. So uh, I moved back to Arizona and you know, quickly discovered that nobody cares what you've done or who you've worked with in a town that's not based on recording workflow like Los Angeles was, you know. So so I picked up a guitar again, you know, just going into DEFCON 4, picked up a guitar, started working with a guy that was one of my early mentors who was a fantastic guy named Bob Diaz, who actually moved me from Los Angeles. He came over, he, he actually started a group over 30 years ago called the Amigos, and he would take groups of kids to Germany on a sister city program. He, he put them in, co- these are inner city kids, put them in costumes, taught them to dance, taught them to play instruments, had a working band. And this is all on his own time because he was an educator. So, so I was working for his wife as a graphic designer and then picked up my guitar again, started playing in bands. And then also I taught for him at South Mountain High School, which ha- was a magnet school and had a fantastic 
uh, recording studio that was also built by the guy I worked with these other two rooms. So it was all coming together, you know. So so I worked there and I really uh, kind of understood the educational part a little bit more and what he was doing. And then the Conservatory of Recording Arts had been in existence for, uh, I guess, four or five years at that point. And I went there and applied and they didn't have a position. So I just kind of did my other thing. And then they called me one day and I picked up a couple of days of teaching there. And then I also had taken copious notes on my sessions, you know, in Los yeah. Angeles when I worked there because we'd have all, I mean, it was just literally a revolving door of high-end recording, you know, David Foster, Quincy Jones, uh, Whitney Houston would come through. We did the national anthem for the Super Bowl. We did worked on I'm Your Baby Tonight, worked with great engineers like Eric Zobler and Brad Gilderman and Umberto Gatica and Mick Gazowski and an incredible list of people that were just at the top of the game, you know? So to be in the room with those guys and to be the only other, you know, source for what they needed really puts you <laughs> in a good place. So yeah. I had done that for seven or eight years. And when I had left Los Angeles, I had all these notes. So I approached Recording Magazine about doing some work with them. And I started doing product reviews and and then also with Pro Audio Review, who eventually hired me as editor. So it was going to mean a move to Washington, D.C. But at that point, I had already left Phoenix once and I was eager to leave again. So right. Phoenix is a little toasty in the summers. Huh? It's toasty in the summers. And it's just after living in Los Angeles and being used to that kind of creative edge that happens there and all the talent to go back you know, to a place and my family's there and I love, I love Arizona and it's a beautiful place, but it's not where I wanted to live. So, yeah. so I struck off to, um, Washington DC and I worked there for a year and then they bought a magazine called Audio Media from the UK and it was based out of here. And I've always wanted to live here or at least visit, which I'd never had. So I volunteered to be editor of that magazine because they needed a new editor. So I got to move here and live here for three years and work with that magazine. And then they shuttered that office and went solely from the UK. And I uh, got an offer from the conservatory to go back there as director and then an offer from Mix Magazine. So Yeah, so Mix Magazine is obviously a, a big influencer as a magazine. In fact, I credit Mix for my introduction to recording schools at all because when I was Back in 90, I guess it was 91 at the time, I was back in Boston. I decided I wanted to go learn how to record music. And I went knocking at Berkeley School of Music and discovered pretty quickly that I didn't quite have the, the budget for <laughs> tuition there. And they said, well, there's this magazine called Mix Magazine. And if you look in the back, they do once a year, they do this education segment. So I, I read you know, a list of 50 recording schools and I just got out my pen and paper and wrote away to all 50 and then ended up coming down to Nashville for MTSU. Hmm. Yeah, so that, thank October, you, uh, Yeah, well, you're welcome. October is our education issue to this day. So that's probably was the issue you saw. And it's grown. I mean, what was probably 50 schools in 91 is probably 500 schools wow. now, you know. I mean, literally wow. every junior college and, you know, you name it, are, are full of recording schools, studios and schools, so. Well, let me ask a question that I think a lot of people ask, and I've heard it asked before. When there are that many schools teaching people how to record music, a typical response, um, a critical response would be to say, you know, 
where are all the jobs for these kids coming out of school? Uh, you know, and maybe we don't have to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but I'm sure you've responded to that question before. Yes. And it goes deep because a lot of these schools that do big numbers have tapped into low-cost government loans, student loans, and it becomes more a focus on that than doing the job. And that's the problem that I have with a lot of the bigger schools is that there's a disconnect between sales and program, you know? Right. And to do this, to qualify, I won't get into the mechanics of it, but to qualify for the lowest amount of gap funds, which is what the student is liable to pay, you know, they'll give you a Pell Grant if you qualify, and then they can make up this fund that qualifies you to get X amount of dollars. And they want that to be as close to the total amount of the program cost as possible so that when you come in and they sell you, they can say, it's $50 to do an application fee, and then you can get this loan, and we'll, you can get a Pell Grant and whatever other grants are available. And then out of pocket, until you have to start paying your student loan, is, you know, very little, a 500 bucks right, or whatever right. the amount is, you know? So, and that's very enticing to somebody who's, you know, calling it all agog when they go visit these places where there's albums on the wall and, you know, great consoles and it's a cathedral of audio education and they're great rooms and everything, but you're only as good as the people that are teaching you and the structure of the program. That's the main thing. Yeah. So, and the structure of the program, I think fails people when it's more a little bit of everything. Kind of an appetizer plate approach where you have X amount of, you know, broadcast, gaming, live sound, recording, workflows, and then you end up with a little bit of knowledge about everything, but not a it's great... It's like an introduction to everything. It's an introduction, which, yeah. I mean, at the college level, I you know... College is kind of an introduction. That is what it is, and it teaches people how to think, and I understand that, and as a, a thing that would get you into the interest of something, uh, if you're interested in, you know, being an audio engineer, then that's a great thing. But for the costs you're putting out, you know, from, you know, whatever the amount is, tens of thousands of dollars or even more, you know, you can end up with like a big ticket. It doesn't serve you, you mm -hmm. know. So when we started Blackbird, my idea was, because we could start from the ground up, which was an incredible opportunity for all of us to just address these kind of things. So at Blackbird, you guys developed a program that does it differently, right? It's not yeah. like a big college program. Yeah, and it's funny because everybody's kind of tuned into this whole, you know, intern mill mentality that these larger schools have created where, you know, to get their back money, as part of their program, they built in these internship programs where they have to give students X amount of hours and then they can get their cap, you know, they put a cap on it and then next, you know, next and next and next. But because of the number of studios and the way the business has gone, you know, studios don't have the money to hire an employee pool for runners and things like that, even the big studios, you know. So they use interns and there's there's nothing wrong with internships. But when you create a mentality where at the school where the intern has to be, you know, basically a repeating commodity that you you kind of sell to these places, you know, these studios and say, okay, who do you got this month? You know, because we have another class graduating in 30 days or whatever it is. Then I think that does a disservice to the industry and also begs back to your question is where are these jobs? And the fact is, in a, in a great number of cases, there's not these jobs, you know? Right. So 
And my thing is that what they call selective enrollment isn't really selective. <laughs> well, so without getting too deep into the technical aspects of you know running a school system, let's just talk about the question of opportunity for people mm -hmm. who are learning how to make records. Yeah. I have two things to say about it. One is I completely agree with you. I never really had the impression, maybe in the 90s, it felt a little more like you could come out of school and go find a studio and just get hired for something. And I certainly know that that exists on a certain level here. I mean, there are people, super smart people that are really qualified that will go and figure out where an opportunity is and find it. But on the other hand, it's also through my entire career, it's been a DIY process, you know, and that's partly just me and my personality. Yep. But the, the idea that you go out and you kind of make your own luck and you find your own opportunities and you build stuff. I also wanted to have an indie studio. I loved indie rock bands at the time, you know, so I, that was sort of attractive to me. But then I've also had this idea that, you know, the old guard of the recording industry doesn't have to have an answer for the new guard because, you know, the young people who are coming out of school and are learning this and starting out in this, they're going to figure out what the new industry looks like for themselves anyway. Yeah. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I mean, honestly, if you look, when I came up at the old industry, I think there's less opportunity then, to tell you the truth, because of access, you know? So, for instance, when I moved to Los Angeles, I think there were two or three, you know, recording schools in the whole country. There was one in Chillicothe, Ohio, and then there was a program at the um, at LA Community College that an engineer did, and it was just a class, you know? So there wasn't a place to go to actually say, you know, other than a couple books you could get, you know, and, you know, and kind of do self-study and things like that. Berkeley had a, they had a guitar program and instrumental program, but they still didn't even have their recording program going. So how you did it was you moved to New York or Miami or somewhere where there were studios and you knew somebody or you became a runner. Like my in was that I knew my friend David Rideau, who was at Westlake. And I met a guy who was building studios who was in the sales department and broke off from Westlake. And that was my avenue, you know, which is r totally random. Right. I didn't plan it. It just happened. It was just happened to know this guy who knew that guy. And then I started working with him. And then that's when your spirit and your whatever you've got that you bring to the game either puts you in line for being a success or it kicks you out because you, you know, didn't do it. So luckily that happened to me, but it was totally random and there weren't a lot of jobs. So you had these places where, you know, at the time it was Capital, Devonshire, the Lighthouse where I worked or Larrabee, Cherokee, all the stu big studios yeah. that were happening in LA. And when you got a job, you held on for dear life, you right, know, unless right. you got a gig to work with a producer or somebody says, hey, come work with me or whatever it was. So, so now it's all about the access and the schools have the access to the gear and you can go in and you can learn. And then that's what I love about Blackbird is that our access is deep. You guys not, got a little bit of gear over there, don't a you? A lot of gear, but it's not <laughs> even that. It's just, act, it, and not only that, I should say, it's access to musicians and how we work in the school. Um, for instance, next week, I got a guy named Jim Lauderdale coming in. He's a country artist. Oh, he's yeah, going to be fantastic. On, yeah, he's he's working with us at the school. So we give him a smoking deal for studio time in in exchange for him coming in and being the band for our weekly project. So rather than, you know, my background has been I teach, I taught at Belmont, for instance, an advanced recording class. It was three or four hours, and each week I taught, which I think I had, it was a Tuesday, 
This was a year four class. It was like piano, guitar, drums, you know, whatever, a band. And we got players to come in. And that was, that was the only time those students saw advanced workflow from me anyway. And I'm sure they took other classes. But the thing is, at Blackbird, the way we do it is, which as far as I know, the only system that really does that is the band comes in for four days. So we have two days tracking and two days overdubs. And you go A to Z, just like you would if a band's coming in to cut five or six songs. So you start at the beginning and you go through the recording process yeah, until it, you got something done. Yeah, and at this, at this point, when that happens, it's week seven. So they go through and they meet Mark Rubel, who's an incredible part of our our, 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 our teaching staff. Yeah, also been a guest on this podcast. Yeah, and he's a very knowledgeable guy. He's owned Pogo Studios for over 30 years. He's been a recording engineer. He's a, he's a musician. He knows everybody. I mean, Mark is, I mean, he can call George Massenberg or Ken Scott or anybody like that, Andrew Sheps, and get a, get them to talk on Skype with the students, so which happens yeah. all the time. Our guest mentor list, either in person or via Skype, is incredible. So Mark is a, is a great uh, reason why Blackbird is so good. And then um, at our end, in the studio end, we do two weeks of training where we teach them how to set up two mics because they have access to any of the mics in the collection, which I, you know, when that was established early, early on by John McBride, my jaw dropped and said, okay, if I'm getting that kind of, you know, gift, then we have to organize this in a way that nothing's going to be damaged. Everybody understands the importance of workflow and running cables and all the things we do use to organize. And uh, all that was taken from Blackbird workflow from the assistants, you know, so, and plus the knowledge that I had in my cohort, Jeremy Cottrell. So when we did that, it was, you know, we, we train them for two weeks and then at week seven, they start with bands. And then we've done over 90 bands in four years. Nice. You know, so. Well, I mean, that's more experience than I got when I was going to school. I learned a lot of technical stuff and I was able to bring in my own band. And, you know, they might do a class where somebody volunteered to bring in their guitar rig or something like that, or we put mics on a drum kit. But I definitely didn't get the experience of watching professionals go through yeah, recording something from start no, to finish. And, and it's like, we'll, we'll get bands that are just local bands that are coming up here that have moved here or bands come. We had a girl come from the UK to work with us. We had a guy, Rasmus Scoff, came from Denmark. I met him over there and I suggested he comes over and does a project. He came over, worked with the students. We've got Gary Talent coming in uh, later this month, who's Bruce nice. Springsteen's bass player yeah, yeah. and uh, a Hall of Fame member. He's coming in with his band to work with the students. I mean, and that's an incredible you know, yeah. I mean, I'm excited about that. Yeah, you know? totally, totally. So, well, that's very cool. Um, all right, well, so let's let's keep jumping forward. I like to ask our guests to share a story of an important failure for you. I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. You've done a lot of stuff really well, and you did talk about the process of going from different opportunity to opportunity. But you know, maybe you can share a good story of of things kind of falling apart for you and it became a real learning experience. I love that question, by the way. I did a um, just a quick side story here. I did a uh, live podcast for um, SAE when they opened a school in Miami. And it was Roger Nichols and it was Desmond Child, DJ Muggs, and Alan Parsons on the, nice. on the dais, right? Nice. So my question was just what you asked. What's a major failure? And this, this had been rolling for a while. This, you know, was, it, people were throwing questions and as soon as I asked that question, it was crickets because nobody <laughs> wanted to, 
And the Desmond Child told me this great story about how he uh, he was on a session with a major vocalist of a song he wrote, and he was at Criteria with an MCI console. And what happened was they were listening back to this tracking session, and the vocalist was going to come in and do overdubs for the next day. And an assistant had hot-plugged a remote that was in record into the machine while it was running, which immediately put all tracks into record. Holy crap. Yeah, right in the middle of the song. And, and, and not realizing this happened, which I don't know if it was in the room or in a machine room or whatever, it just went, it went dead. And they said, oh, did the power go out? Or what's going on with the speakers? And there's no mm-hmm. meters and all this stuff. And then after about 30 or 40 seconds or a minute, you know, which is carving through the song on oh, all tracks. Yeah. Somebody realized what was happening and hit stop and it was panic mode because the vocalist was on his way. So Desmond w- was nice enough to share that f- the fact that what they did was he says, okay, because he was, you know, really scared about this because he didn't want to look, you know, poorly, et cetera. So he said, okay, the console, the MCI, I don't remember, used to open like a hood of a car, right? Yeah. He says, open that up and prop it up and when the singer comes in, we're just going to tell him something's wrong with the console. I don't know if we can record today. So they did that. And the guy says, well, I'm going to just take some phone calls in the lobby and whatever. And they just kind of waited it out. And then um, when the singer finally said, look, it's not going to happen. I'll come back tomorrow. Is that cool? And then, yeah. And so they called the band back. And luckily, all the guys who had played on the tracking session, and they had documented the session or whatever they had done. And, and uh, they just basically fixed the gap. Holy crap. Yeah. So, and he said the vocalist never knew about it, and it was a live broadcast. So I said, well, he, he probably knows now. So <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry to do the sidetrack then, but that's an that's awesome great. story. What a story. But wow, that's, lo- that's a major fix. Too. Yeah. That, and uh, to make that work, you need great studio musicians, and they had the budget, and Desmond great recall written notes a million, million hits. Yeah, so that just uh, t- showed you what the level of criteria's kind of workflow that went on there. But Yeah, and as another side note, you're sitting next to the console that used to be in Studio C or Criteria. Yeah. Right yeah. here, right so, here, and here it is. Yeah, that's, I, when I walked in the room, I was like, oh, man. And it this has is, the, 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 I don't lift them up so much anymore because it feels just too risky, you know? Yeah. But the, the console will open up like a car hood, like yep. you just said. Yep, that was an MCI feature. So I suppose for me, it's more kind of a global thing. I don't have anything as glamorous or, or terrifying as Desmond's story. But I think through kind of losing everything, you know, which I, I didn't lose everything, but at the time it seems like it, you know. So when you go through an earthquake, which is really no fault of anybody's, and it just ruins the town. And, you know, I was above the the five break, you know, I was up in, by Magic Mountain up there and the five freeway literally just fell apart. So they had to figure out to get I a way to that. get people up and down. The power went out. We were outside with flashlights, you know, it was 4.30 in the morning and slowly the sun came up and turning off the gas with our aluminum gas wrenches, which is an LA staple, everybody should have one of those. And we had a tent, we had a whole earthquake kit and our place was, you know, had cracks in the walls and all our groceries from the refrigerator and the cabinets were on the floor and broken ketchup bottles. And we had two dogs at the time. We weren't sure what happened to them. And we found them both hiding under things and, you know, kind of had, you know, gotten through it. So anyway, just having to restart at that point was just a major deal, you know? So, and to go back and to, you know, tap dance and figure out like, okay, I'm going to do this now and I'm going to do this now. And then slowly, and it was, had jobs that I particularly didn't like, you know? So, which the graphic design thing, for instance, I was, I was making like nine bucks an hour and it was, 
you know, I was young, younger then. It w- wasn't that big of a deal living in an apartment, you know, after living in a, in a house and restarting. So, uh, and then after that, it really kind of trains you in how to be resilient, you know? And then uh, once again, when uh, Audio Media closed its doors and I had to move out of Nashville, it was just devastating to me, you know? Yeah. It's just like, it was like, oh man, you know, I just started getting my feet wet here and meeting people and I loved it here and I was teaching at Belmont as an adjunct and kind of, you know, getting to know the the town and all this stuff. And then that happened. And then all of a sudden, you know, I think there's an openness that you have to keep for new things because you fight opportunities, you know, kind of, I've said pretty much yes to everything that yeah. has come my way, you know, even yeah. the things I thought, well, why, why would I want to do this? You know, I know it's one of those odd things that I've, it's like a mixed message that we get on these interviews where on the one hand, there's a lot of power in learning how to say no to stuff so you can focus on the one thing you want to do. But on the other hand, in the music biz, you know, a lot of people have said the ability to just say yes to everything is part of that, like staying in the game and and just keep going for opportunities. Which makes for other avenues, honestly, you know, so when I had the graphic design gig, I was working, we were, you know, basically working on engines, uh, aircraft engines for a company called Allied Signal which had nothing to do with music, right? So I was doing Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator and doing the visual side of it. And then later on, when I got a job at the magazine, I was using Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator and I could get around on it really quickly. And I just think back to that and I said, man, you know what? That thing serves me really well right now, you know? So I just think that openness and it's not necessarily a mistake I made. It's just what happens to me and then goes, I don't know if that answered your question. Well, you can't always predict what accumulation of knowledge and skills you're going to end up with. Yeah. When I went for an internship at Woodland Studios, I really wanted to intern and learn how to make records. Well, they said, you can come intern here, but there isn't a studio internship. It's a technical internship. You're going to work with a technician and learn how to build wires and cables. And I took it. And while I was there, I remember feeling somewhat frustrated about not being in the studio during sessions. But on the other hand, I got to meet a lot of people in the lobby when they're taking breaks. And that's when they could actually have a conversation with me, you know, a lot of great producers and stuff. And then the next job I went to, I finally got a, you know, landed a gig in a studio. And my ability to show up with all this knowledge about how to help them rebuild the patch bay was like, I made myself invaluable there. Yeah. So, yeah. It's definitely good to realize that sometimes the things that look like they might be going the wrong direction for where you thought you wanted to go might be a great opportunity to learn some other skill set yeah. while you're doing it. Now, there are decisions you can make that put you that do that, that go in the wrong direction. Like, you know, just things that kind of mess with you, drug use or alcohol, you know, that kind of stuff is just never good. Yeah, I'm not you. sure what skills you're learning from those. Yeah, those zero skills. <laughs> and it's taking you away from your flow and you got to not do that. But um as long as you're going in a direction where you're serving your, you know, your bottom line, I should say, and then, you know, moving forward in some way and meeting new people. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were talking before the interview about some of the systems that you guys have developed over at Blackbird Academy. Um, can you share some of the cool sure. stories you were telling about uh, organizing files yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah. So I'm working on a book right now called The Jump, where I'm basically outlining how you should organize a tracking s- session, a Pro Tools tracking session, to go from tracking to overdubs to mixing to mastering. You know, So 
because especially now how things are working, any number of people might have access to this file as you move through your workflow. So you may track with a band and then they're going to take it home and do vocals because that's what they can afford. And then they're going to come back and do guitars. And then they're going to send it to a mix guy in Florida. And then that mix guy is going to give it to a buddy he knows in California that does mastering. And this session is going to move all over the place. So how you present your end of the work, and you have no control over things that leave. But for instance, when that tracking session's le- session leaves, or, or you yourself jump to an overdub situation, you know, you're going to save the session as. Don't just keep working in the same file. Put the old session in an old sessions folder. And then so the next person that opens that session, even me, sees one Pro Tools session. And it's, it's the one that was worked on last, you know? And then if you kind of set that up, then the, maybe the next person will get the clue, like, oh, I see what they did, you know, and they saved the tracking thing. You know, because if the band comes back and you put the microphones in the comments section and they say, man, now we're ready to do the rest of the record, you know, we got some more money, can we get the same sounds? The answer is yes, because I have the original tracking template, you know, and I know the mics we used, I know the studio we were in, I know how I get my sounds, and, you know, I know our chains and all that stuff that was in the, in the, in the documentation. So we push heavy, heavy, heavy documentation. Let's talk about some of the easy wins for documenting. What are some of the things that you do to accurately document what happened on a session that are easy and simple for people to do okay. versus maybe the more complex ones. Well, I remember some some schools, you know, you come back and an intern shows you this impressive stack that looks like a, the dictionary, you know, right. paperwork. And I, I find that to be not so realistic for most sessions. No, and it's got to be built per session and you got to know where the resources are. So uh, for starters, you'll do that file organization I was talking about. Then... Anytime you're going to take a chain somewhere, you always use an outboard chain. So, for instance, and this makes it easier for the band to do work at home. At Blackbird, it's easy for me because there's a great rental department. So, for instance, if we're in Studio A and we're working on the console, for the vocal chain, I'll go get a MarTech and a, either an outboard LA-2A or whatever we're using. That And it, it's a revolving door of stuff, you know, or something I'm reviewing maybe. Or the Magnum K compressor, which is an awesome compressor I've been using in so anyway, this is outboard stuff that you patch on the day. And then when you go to overdubs, that travels with you. But before it travels with you, you go to BarryRudolph.com, who's a, a guy, uh, an engineer, LA engineer I've known for many years. He writes for me at Mix. He has a compendium of thousands of recall sheets at his website. And it's just, uh, uh, there's a tab that says recall sheets. You go there and it's all alphabetically organized. You know, organi- organized. So A through D and D, you know, E through J or whatever. And you hunt for that piece of gear and you print it out and then you will document that piece of gear. And then we also put the serial number on there and the microphone we're using by serial number, et cetera. So when you jump to overdubs or the band says, we want to do vocals at home, I say, okay, well, here's what you get. You get the MarTech, you get the, that LA-2A, serial number 701 or whatever, I'm going to send you a PDF of the documentation. No brainer. You just set the dials and buttons like they like it says. And you use the same microphone. And when you step up to the microphone, you hit record. You're ready to go because that was the levels we got. That was the compression, you know, unless it's a different vocalist, you know, and I tell them where to put their face in relation to the microphone and all that kind of organization pays off in the track sounding, you know, very much the same as it did on the first day. Which yeah, you, totally, totally. 
Do you guys use the power of photographs? I remember my assistant at Blackbird, he took photographs, a lot of digital photos of this stuff too. Yeah. You know, I, I use the power of my iPhone a lot here. Yeah, in my studio. that's an easy thing because everybody's got a camera in their pocket now. Even back in the day, it, we didn't do it at the Lighthouse because I had put together a a documentation book for a 72-channel console. It was a Studer console, so there were no, you know, we had to do our own art, and I put it all together. So we had documentation books that were pre-made up, and I could just flip it over and by hand go through. You know, it wasn't an SSL experience. So other studios would take Polaroids, you know, which is a little expensive, but, you know, it got the job done, and you have all these Polaroids. In yeah, there, back so. in the day, they used to have a Polaroid camera sort of mounted above the console just looking down, right? Yeah. To just shoot it and, yeah. and you see all and, and, the And that at that time was an important thing because if, uh, you know, I documented, you know, maybe, I don't know, probably between 70 and 100 mix sessions and recalled four. But if you weren't ready when they come back and you get that call, that was not a good thing. Yeah. Know? So the, my experience in this, you know, smaller scale studio is similar. I try and impress upon my interns the importance of documentation. That's one of the responsibilities that I let them learn how to do. And we keep it simple. We use phones and we use Google Docs and stuff like that. But it's that understanding of the pressure that happens when the artist comes in. They say, oh, yeah, let's just do what we did last time. And if you need to do it or if you need to match a vocal chain or something like that and you don't have it, man, it's a session killer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, so let's jump forward to this very cool plugin that you introduced me to. In fact, when I met you over at Blackbird this summer NAM, the RIN M plugin. Yeah. It is an, a new element of documentation. Can you take us on an introduction of what it's all about? I hate the word game changer, the words game changer, but that's an accurate way to uh, describe it. And I found out about it almost by accident when Gabri came in to meet me to talk about his Soundways uh, leveler and all the other plugins and we're in reviewing them right now it's actually for mix and he says oh yeah i'm working on this other thing it's called rin m and i said well what's that and he explained it to me and i was really tuned into that whole metadata push through my association with the p e wing and maureen droney was nice enough to invite me to a couple of breakfasts that they had um, uh, at nam and aes where they discussed a number of things and there were just a round table of you know, Phil Wagner from Focusrite and, you know, Peter from Radial Engineering and, you know, a guy from the Fraunhofer Institute and all these, you know, really incredible people talking about standards and, you know, high-res recording and Chuck Ainley was there and, you know, um, all these great engineers. And so, so anyway, part of it was, hey, you know what, metadata is really important. There's no more album credits. What's happening with this? We, we have to drive it, you know. And they've been working with a company that was uh, formerly known as BMS Chase. And now they are, uh, or now and then, they were trying to organize this. And they got a grant from the Library of Congress to put it together because they knew, they understood how important it was to be able to track this stuff, you know, to really, uh, you know. and it, you, well, What's the stuff we're trying to track here? Well, we it could be anything that appeared on an album cover 25 years ago, you know, or on a CD sleeve. So basically players, the studio, the date it was recorded, uh, the format, you know, I don't remember, remember the little code, A, D, 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 or whatever it was, analog, digital. Oh, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. remember that? Oh, man. So the, they, yeah, you used to look at your CD and you're like, ooh, this one's D, 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 right. D, D. exactly. That sounds so, pretty good. So that was another standard that they came up with. I don't even know who came up with it, but that told a story about the lineage of the production path, you know? And as soon as you go to... You know, you go past 1999 and it's be becoming a file sharing mentality. 
that whole thing fell apart. And it, as even when a civilization falls apart, nobody knows about it. So nobody picks up the ball and runs with it unless it's a technical organization like p and or the people at BMS. Well, let's talk about even old school vinyl. Like, you know, you go and you pick up a recording of, you know, I don't know, church pipe organ that's from the 50s or something like that or 60s. And you'd flip it over and there would be liner notes on the back of the mm-hmm. vinyl that would talk about the actual recording process. Yep. They'd talk about the microphones they yeah. used and stuff like that. Especially on classical. sort of an audiophile. Yeah, approach, on classical you know? Decca records especially. You know, they would either have it on the back of the album or in the sleeve inside. And there was this incredible art, which is another great loss in the, you know, in the world of music production is the album art that really drove yeah. It drove sales, but it was incredible. Like, you know, the cover uh, the cover of Cheap Thrill's Big Brother and the Holding Company, you know, right, our, right. our crumb art. Or uh, Santana Abraxas, which is an incredible piece of art on an album. Or, you know, you name it, right? Yeah. So that aside, uh, that's where I learned who Rudy Van Gelder was. I know who Creed Taylor was. I knew the bass player on Freddie Hubbard's record. Or I knew the session musicians on an Eagle record or, you know, you name it. And I got to know like, you know, who the LA, LA guys were, Howard Roberts or Dean Parks or, you know, Steve Lukather or anybody who played on any record that I loved. I could say, man, those are the guys. Those are the guys I want to either study with or, or record or work with. And that gave me direction to move to Los Angeles. You know, it, it changes your life. Honestly, the knowledge base of knowing where things come from and, Who's doing it, you know? My first gig in a studio when I went from my internship to getting a job over at Alex the Great recording in Berry Hill entirely resulted from the fact that the record came out, I flipped it over, there was the name of the recording studio on the back, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go look it up in the Yellow Pages, and you know, and there it was. I, I, I happened to be lucky that when I actually called the number at the studio, you know, the producer answer, answered the phone and not just yep. the receptionist was like, you know. Yeah, Sorry, d- they're not download here. a Taylor Swift cut from, you know, whatever service she's on, SoundCloud or Spotify or whatever, and try to get that information. Yeah. you All music has a certain amount of that, but it's not all accurate and it's not as voluminous as you'd get. So anyway, fast forward to my conversation with uh, with Gabri and it was, he started telling me this story about this plugin. Yeah, it's this plugin. And I'm, as soon as he said plugin that set off the alarm, uh, the good alarm, because that was the, that was the holding, or, or I should say the stumbling block for making this whole thing work. Because Peony and Avid and all these people at the table at those meetings, they were trying to get the dog companies across the board to write this metadata on a standard basis, standard, standardized basis, right. which still hadn't been established t- till almost... You know, there's a thing called ERN that the rec- record companies are are using r- right now, and then RIN, which just got it finalized last October. RIN is recording information notification. So it still wasn't a standard, and and these companies who are really going through a tough time. I mean, Avid, I can't tell you the number of I don't know anybody there anymore. I mean, just this last week, Tony Caridi, who would be a great interview, by the way now left for Dolby. And you got, you know, Rich Nevins leaving and Tim Carroll, and there's a handful of other guys, including Anthony Gordon, who we talked about before the podcast. Yeah, They're all gone, either by their own leaving or not. So these companies are not going to put money into something that's not driving, you know, money, 
Right, basically. exactly. Which you yeah. can't blame them for making a dime. You know, I can't, yeah, it's I hard can't, enough to just sort of do a day's work at a yeah. big company, let alone you know, introduce and, uh, new Honestly, new the standards. Pro Tools upgrades they've done since they went subscription are incredible. You know, they've, they've, they've made some things, the Command Option 8 shortcut, and, and also many things that used to be HD only, you know, and commit and, and, uh, and freeze and all these What's things. The, the Command Option 8, is that the one where it That's, throws your mix up to the Yeah, faders? the small faders, small which faders, used yeah. to be, you know, a nightmare to do. <laughs> Otherwise, but it was Pro Tools HD. Now that's all, you know, anyway, they've done a great job with upgrades. So they don't have time to put this standard into their DAW. It's not going to draw people to their product and and make it better. So on a certain level. So as soon as he said plug in, then he said it was free. I was ecstatic. And I said, oh, man, hold, hold on. Let's not talk about this other thing, which I know is great. Let's talk about Rin. And immediately I said, okay, I made him the promise at that point, at that meeting, which wasn't that long ago. We were talking about a couple months. He, I said, I will write a, an iBook ebook, you know, that I'll give to my students, but I'll give to you too to distribute because where this is really going to happen is from the ground floor with people who are producing, you know, Fruity Loops sessions in their bedroom and not called Fruity Loops anymore, but, you know, Ableton, et cetera, et cetera. Some making kid. beats. Yeah, making beats. And they have no lease on what happens as it goes to SoundCloud. And that song, I mean, look what's happened, you know? Yeah. I mean, y- you can't say that a kid in Des Moines producing beats can't be, you know, something that would appear on an HBO show. Right, because that it, does happen. Because it does happen, you know? And it, 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 and and it's not at the level where I, I just watched um, the HBO uh, defiant ones and how Eminem and Dr. Dre got together and that that's at the high end, you know, but this, this is basically at the base level. Some kid in a bedroom or a basement yeah. can put together a great track. So how does he track his credits? There's the answer is there's no way to, you know, so if you can teach them at the basic level, I'm talking about, you know, if a grade school teacher can open this RIN book and go, oh, that's what RIN is, and that explains it. And then it's a, in a PDF, and it can be on any computer or a phone. or And then it's also in the iBooks format. So if you have an Apple, you can go in and you can paste through it. And there's some interactive things. There's a quiz at the end, and you can give my students the quiz. And it's self-grading. It's going to make my job easier. And I have something new to show them. And then they can go home. It's like, right, who has Logic? I have Logic. Who has Ableton? I have Ableton. Go home over the weekend, download this free plugin, read this book, and then come back and show me what you've done. Yeah. And the book is the one that you've written. What's the name of the book? We're, it's called Rin uh, Plugin Training. Nothing glamorous. Okay, but okay, it's, cool. it's more about it's the content. Yeah. More, more about the content than the actual title. But And it's not huge. It's easy to get your brain around. It's little small chunks is how I write, especially for students that I'm seeing. Uh, and some of which have no experience and some of which have a lot of experience, if you put it in a way that everybody can digest it easily and decide, okay, I already know this, I'm going to move on. Or they say, oh, I really need to get my head around this and then yeah. move on. So Yeah, well, I read the book and I thought it was a great explainer on how the RIN and plugin works. And Rockstar is listening. Uh, we put together a link for you to go get a copy of it too. So I'll tell you what that is right now, rsrockstars.com slash R-I-N. Same link I used on Gabri Waddell's interview. But if you go there, you're going to get a copy of Kevin's book. You can go download the free plugin. And we may even have some coupon codes there for you for uh, Soundway stuff or other interesting items. We'll just add to it as we go. But go check it out right now. Let's jump in for a sec and talk about actually using RIN-M. In okay. fact, Gabri even suggested that might be a good 
topic for us to yes. just sort of extend his introduction. Yes. So, um, yeah. How, what's the first thing you do with this plugin? Okay. I mean, so you install it's it, real simply. It's a one screen plugin. It's not a multi screen kind of a, a, a screen with pull downs in, embedded in it. And I, I just, yesterday I was working on a review for Mix Magazine that's going to be in the September issue. So that's another resource for people that they can go to mixonline.com and read my review once after September 5th, I think is when they put up the digital stuff. Or watch my Facebook feed and anybody listening, if you want to uh, ping me on Facebook and uh, I still got some friend space, I would love you to follow what I do. So I it's all audio. You're not going to see what I had for breakfast or where I'm on vacation, that kind of thing. So nice. um, you instance ran, in and in the, in the, the thing I recommend is that you make a new aux track, not an audio track, an aux track, and you call it credits or you call it nice. whatever is comfortable for you. And you instance the plugin on that. And it lives in your session at the very first level before you hit record on anything. So it's there and it's waiting to be populated. So when you open the plugin, it it comes up on the screen, and there's three basic sections. There's a top section that's uh, you know song title and artist, and then at the bottom there's more of a technical info section where it it deals with um, a couple codes that we can talk about the uh, ISRC and ISWC codes, which is explained really nicely on Gebri's website and also in the book it talks about what those are. And then it goes into technical data, like what's the sample rate of the session? What's the file format? Does it have samples? Yes or no? What's the last format that came out of it? Did the mastering engineer kick it up to DSD or, you know, any kind of PCM up to 352.8? DXD is covered. So even the high-end guys that are doing um, classical recording or anything, all that is addressed, everything on pull downs and you just click on it and da da da. The middle section is where you make the profiles for the participants. And that can be anyone from a manager to a record company to a player to an engineer to an assistant to any of the things you used to see. Interns too? Interns, yeah. So anything you used to see on an album cover can now be in this thing. So it's a one screen thing and you can go deep and you can put their their name address postal code so it's it's basically friendly for all countries. And you go in and you define their role category and what they've done on the project and then you save that as a profile. Boom. That lives in that plugin that you can export, but it also lives on your system now. So when you jump to the next song, the easiest thing to do is to export your RIN from the first song, import your RIN into the second song, and all the stuff is there, which you then can start adding to for that day. You know, So right, let's say right. the second day, the keyboard player left, but you gained a you know, Dobro or Steel guy. You know? So you can right. go in and on that one, you can take out the keyboard player, put in the new guy. But let's say the keyboard player came back on day three. You go in and you can instance that plugin again and import that RIN. Or if he comes at a later session on another date, you just put his name in and it comes instantly up on the screen. Is his, it actually embedding dates too for things? Uh, well? Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole date. There's a date field. that. It so helped. let me back up a sec. When you talked about um, setting up profiles for people, Gabri was also talking about this cool feature, I believe, where the musician themselves might already have their own profile on their phone, you know, and you yep. can just kind of. So what, because when you hit, there's two buttons at the, at the bottom that are really important. One's called Get Codes, which takes you to Soundway's website and explains what ISNI, ISRC, ISWC codes are. And that's based, uh, ISNI, for instance, you know, I, I didn't even realize that I had an ISNI code from a song I wrote in the 80s. And it's permanent. It's like a social security number and it's a one, it's a one shot deal. So once you have an ISNI code, 
you can use that over and over and over again, and it leads to your profile on in that standard. So yeah. I think we might need to break these down a little bit again, just in case somebody hasn't already, you know, listened to the last episode where we talked about this. But ISRC code is the code that identifies the recording itself. The work owner and, you know, that it's it's the work, not the producer or the right, participant. Right, right. And then the ISWC code that's is That's another one international that's the code that covers more European and Asian countries. Okay, so it's, it's right. like ISRC for another region, you know, you could say. Yeah, and then and they it, both, it's ISNI is the name code. So yeah. that's the one that identifies an individual or an artist. Yes, or, you know, that, it, that, yeah, exactly. So that's, and that's uh, 25 bucks. Yeah. One shot deal and everybody should have one. I mean, if it's the best $25 you'll ever spend. So Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So anyway, there's there's you can populate those and so as a player, uh, getting back to that, on a jump drive, you could have ex, you know, just your profile export it and then give it to them to import or you can just, you know, have your data and send it to them in a text file. That's what I would lo- love to see the next kind of thing that would happen is to be able to Gabriel would be better to talk about this, but anyways, a, a, a quick way for somebody to grab some individual stuff. Yeah, you know? I mean, like easy. whatever it is, you can pretty much rest assured it's going to happen. It's going to, yeah. whatever the super easy way is. Remember when we first got iPhones and you used to come up and you just were supposed bump. to and bump your iPhones yeah. together? Yeah, which I did two times and then I forgot about exactly. it. Exactly. So I, I don't know how that and... never took off, but yeah. um, the idea that there will be a very easy way to do it, you text yeah. it. You'll just text it to the engineer. Which, you know? well, just talking about that, so there's an analogy that is important. The reason bump didn't catch on is because not everybody had bump. But if everybody has this free thing, you know, this plugin, which, you know, it's just a no-brainer to get it, that people can start really thinking about this lineage of data that has to happen that you have to provide as the user, you know, and that, it takes time. That was the other thing is like, who's going to do this? Who's going to leave, you know, in, in before the RINM plugin, it was like, you had to go to a place like Oddly or Jamber or any of these places and leave Pro Tools and go to a website and be online and, you know, have paid the money it takes to be a member of that thing. This is a free club. Yeah. And yeah. it lives in your session. And while you're doing playback for the band, you can be going in there and tidying up like you would normally do, you know, quick edits or whatever while, while that's happening. Totally. And I can guarantee you that it'll probably get easier with adoption and, yeah. and as people develop new ways of doing it. But I would also suggest that at first it could sound like you know, the question of, well, who's going to do it? You know, well, that's a question for something that sounds like a bunch of work because nothing was done yet and you'd have to enter everything about a song. But if you're incorporating this in your actual process, it's going to get easier. I bet there's going to be a way to, you know, do a quick guitar overdub and hit a quick key and the guitar overdub feature gets added. Yeah, which gets us back to the kid in Des Moines doing his beats in his bedroom and nobody knows who this is until that becomes music on a, you know, on a, on a theme show, so uh, on a on a on a HBO show or whatever. So, you know, how much can you hate money? Is the question I ask. Uh, let's talk about that. And, and before we even jump into the money aspect, I want to say that you know I've heard you reference a couple of times the the bedroom beat ends up on HBO, and that is an obvious you know correlation that you'd like to connect. But I, I want to take it a step further and suggest that. It's not even the big wins that are going to matter as much. I think that for me personally, I would love to discover something that I appreciate and then just be able to easily see through, you know, behind the curtain and discover who who did what part of it yep. and be able to connect with them. I'd love for it to tie into yep. social media somehow that I can go just contact that guy and, and go hire him for a session. Yeah. You know? And think about this. Think about, uh, and this was an early thought I had was that 
what if, you know, RIN, the RIN, original RIN plugin is going to be free. Gabri's working on a, on a pay version that's going to have some extra features, but the original, which is full featured and all you need, honestly, is there. He's done this out of pocket and I, you can't blame him for trying to get marketing and, you know, money and things to make it, his thing work. So there's going to be another version of RIM, like RIM Pro or whatever he's going to call it. But what if the next level could be that as a value-added thing where the money would go back to the engineer, where you knew what plugins he used on that session and the actual setting on that sound? And then you could go and download that thing and then yeah. practice and play. Yeah, that would you be know, cool. That's a great educational tool. And you're also getting into This is why I love what Pyramix is doing with Andrew Sheps, especially giving up basically his template and his secrets and all the things he does, which is just a mind blower, you know? So it's a great way as an engineer to learn at, at my level or anybody's level or somebody new coming up in the business that just wants to have something to do on a weekend, you know? So yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the money aspect. You said, how can, how much can you not love money? Yeah. What are some of the things that people aren't thinking of that may become very realistic opportunities to actually earn a little bit more money for what you do making a record? Yeah. So connected to this, you know, metadata. Yeah. So as, as your metadata, not only discovery of yourself and your work, which is, that's your resume. Think of it as a living resume, this, this metadata. And when somebody goes in, now there is a, a break in the link that's quickly, I, from what I'm talking uh, to Tony Brooke at Pandora and Maureen, that the, there's one major label that's now looking at RIN and going to incorporate it. But, and they're all going to be on board eventually. And then also the streaming services. Because right now RIN kind of stops. But they're, the, point, the point is they're not ignoring it. They're collecting it. Because they don't have the time or the people to put these credits in. So it benefits them, right? All these streaming services and labels. Now, now Tidal has a great system already. I don't even know what they're using, but where you can go on a Tidal track and look at a full credit list, which is great. You got to give it up to them for really incorporating that where nobody else is, right? So when that happens, there's a lineage from front to back, then it's all going to happen. So discovery. So if I go in and put in Lidshaw as uh, you know engineer, right? get a list of your work, the name of your studio, your website, I can find you. Just the same way we talked about earlier where you went to work with that studio in Berry Hill based on the album came out and you sent them a note. Yeah, you know? yeah. So really important stuff. So discovery, it's tracking your work. It's being able to lay claim to something later on. Let's say, you know, and this can happen like Nick Drake, for instance. I don't know if you remember that song, Pink Moon. Right? Oh, yeah. So Pink Moon... I had no idea who Nick Drake was, nor did many people. And then all of a sudden there was a Volkswagen commercial oh, yeah, from the that, yeah. from above and there's a little car on a on a dark road with headlights and that song's playing and it gives you goose I can, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Great song, great artist, uh, incredible story, unfortunately with a, a sad ending. But I mean if you go and just research Nick Drake and the and the recordings he did and you know there's a great documentary on Netflix with his sister talking about his life and what he was doing and he was just racked with, you know, just horrible feelings about himself, but he was a creative genius, you know, yeah, and you yeah. listen to that song, even now, it's like, you can't not love that song. So Nick Drake gets on a Volkswagen commercial. What happens to the players? You know, there's money to be had in some countries, you know, in the UK, especially for the players on the, on those songs. How do you track that? 
you know? How do you say, oh, I'm the drummer? It's like, oh, I'm the drummer. It's like, I'm Spartacus, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah. so it's, uh, you don't know. But if Rin is taken seriously and it goes through and it's vetted and it's, you know, as will happen as it grows and making sure everything's right and the names are spelled correctly and everything, there's a, there's a line into that thing, especially from the streaming services, which have to save a chunk of their income as a pool of money available to the creators and they're not going to look for you. You have to go and get it, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's companies that do that full time, you know, that record labels used to do on their own accord. But now that it's kind of spread across 15 streaming services and stuff like that, they don't have the personnel. So it's up to you to claim your piece of the pie and no matter how big or so or small and that pie could grow over time. Yeah. Depending well, on it's it. fascinating. And, and I, certainly a very cool, it's a cool concept. I mean, it's a cool sort of vision for the future of, of keeping track of all this stuff. We remember for sure how much fun it was to be able to go accumulate our own research on music that we loved and the records that we loved and sort of a, you know, just build this library in your own head of musicians you appreciate, producers you appreciate, artists and stuff. And it'll be really cool for, for that to come back again, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you may have answered this one right here, just talking about the, the Pink Moon song. But I want to ask you, like, what's, what's one of the more obscure stories you've heard about somebody getting a benefit from a credit later on down the line? Oh, boy. Has there been anybody that, you know, got a paycheck that was never expecting it? Or was there somebody who just got invited to do um, an sure amazing the, record? I'm sure the guys I or the people I always worked with always had that figured out, you know? So um, I used to work with at Lighthouse with a guy named Ferdinand Jay, who was the voice of the Buick commercials, and he had a Jay Advertising in Rochester. And he would do these HB... We would do the music for these HBO things, like uh, when it was a game. And... You know, you could actually through IATSE go in and get a get some money. You know, and if you were a, if it was going to appear on the t television, you know, because you're in that union and the, the payoff is great. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story um, about what can happen and the money that can be in. I did a, I had built a studio, a home studio for Kenny G when I was a, just an assistant, and my deal with him was that if I helped him put together the studio, that once it was finished, if I could engineer the next record, and then he'd pay me for that. So, and he said yes, and it was great, and he, he was very generous, and, and it was an awesome experience. So, there was a session that he wanted to do, which uh, we put together. Uh, he said, do you know any vocalists? And I, you know, at that time, you know, in Los Angeles, if you if you came through and you knew, you know, Jerry Hay and, and, Gar uh, and Gary and all the horn players, or you knew... A bunch of singers or you knew some great drummers or, or bass players you knew their numbers you could even go to the union book you know which at that I, time I there was remember. a union contact book and yeah. they were all in it so and there was no web at that time so you literally had to call their service everybody had a service or a beeper or something you know so he asked me to put together a vocal group and i knew philip ingram who was james ingram's brother and i called him and i said okay it's he says what it, what is it and i said it's a union thing and it's uh, so he hired like James Gilstrap, who was one of the guys I read about an album cover. So all these people are coming to Rose Stone, Sly Stone's sister, Philip, uh, who was also a great singer. And then a couple other singers or five singers. So 
they came up to the house and I had prepared it and, you know, figured out how to record five singers and we had a whole system down and I, you know, I got the sounds and we worked on two songs and one was like a really long song, like a six minute thing, you know? So, and we did it and it sounded unbelievable, you know, and all, it, it was amazing. So after the session, it came time to get the money thing together. And James, or, or Philip, I should say, was the contractor. So he got out his rate card and this, 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 and he's writing things down. Everybody's like happy. And then he gives the thing to Kenny. And I just see the face go, his face go white, you know. And this was in the 90s, early 90s. So he's, he said, why, what, what happened? It was, why is it, I think it was like $12,000. Not for the vocal. For the vocals. Yeah, for the to pay the singers. Wow. And then he, and then Philip said, "Well, we're all IATSE, so there's a there's a rate card, and I'm the contractor. I get to double. And then depending on the song length, like that six minute song, when it's a double song, thing, you know. And I I learned this way back when my when I was a little kid, and my mom had done a cheer commercial in our basement, and it was like you know Mrs. Becker in Cleveland, Ohio, da da da, and they had these two boxes that were covered in white paper and she'd do a load in our basement of, you know, with the X <laughs> brand and the Y brand. That's and at true. the end she would say, oh, these are much wider. And then they'd rip the label off and, oh, it's cheer, right? right so nice. I remember coming home from school one day and there was this truck parked outside and this lady said, we got to be quiet because they're downstairs and they're making a commercial, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I don't know, third grade or second grade something. And so... This went national, this commercial, and my mom, uh, you know, was in it. And we bought, you know, my dad bought a new car and we put a thing on the back porch and a new house, you know, new addition to the house. So it was big, you know, even then it was big money. So anyway, back to the story with Kenny. So he said, he explained that why it was so expensive. So he says, well, what if I only use four minutes of that song? Can I get a reduction? And he said, no, because, you know, you can get a refund if you cut it, but I can't give you, you know, that's the rule, right? So, so anyway, there's a lot of money wow. to be had for that. And then I talked to Jim Gilstrap, who we left the room because it was getting pretty, not tense, but just, you know, kind of changed the vibe. And he says, man, he says, that's, this is why I don't do records anymore. I says, well, what do you do? And all the cars that came up with were really nice cars. He goes, I do, I do a lot of Disney stuff. He says, I just sang a theme. Uh, here, for example, I just sang, sang a theme for Goof Troop, which was a cartoon show. I said, it was a, it was a one minute thing. And he said, it ran for the season and I made $90,000. And I said, you mean nine, did you say 9,000? He goes, no, I made $90,000. And I, I was just like, what? Cause he says, yeah, you get paid for every market and it's Disney. It goes everywhere in each market, whether they put in 200 bucks per thing. He says, I get these checks in the mail. And if they re up it, which I think they're going to do, I get another check without even going and doing the session again. That's amazing. So, so anyway, especially with television and IATSE and movies and the way things are going, you have 500 channels and they're all looking for recording content, you know, either from a needle drop company like Five Star Music or maybe you're providing music as a buyout for Five Star. There has to be a record of what you're doing. And, yeah. and especially if you're at the level where you become really hot and you can bypass the whole kind of buyout thing and you can go directly to the source, tell me that can't happen and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you no. I mean, I'll tell right. you, yes, it can happen. Well, so I think that part of the takeaway from your story is to understand that if your vision doesn't extend beyond your studio, your home studio and your little local network where you're thinking, well, this isn't all worth all that much, the beauty of 
metadata and contracts is that they can reach much further to much bigger opportunities with people that you've never even met before. You you've know? got to lay claim to your to your uh, credits and, and to your uh, future. Yeah, and that's, that's a simple way to do it. it. It's it takes all it takes is time. It doesn't cost you a penny other than time. And as soon as you get your head around it and get better at it and understand how it works, and then send that RIN file with the audio as it goes along, and then tracks you down to you know the mix engineer. He adds his name. The mastering engineer. He adds his name. It goes to the record company or the streaming service or whatever. And by the way, DistroKid and all these other independent tracking companies are on board with RIN. They're going to be using it. They're all going to be, it's eventually going to happen. And I think the to the credit of Gebri, that vision of making it free and, and putting it out, out of his own pocket, you know, and making this happen so that anybody can get it is the missing link of what happened. It's DAW agnostic, or even if you don't have a DAW, you use it as a freestanding app. And it's available to anybody. That's so. awesome. Well, we're going to take a break now and we'll come back in for the jam session. Rockstars, I want to remind you to go look at the show notes for this episode. And I've got the link in there, rsrockstars.com slash RIN, R-I-N, where you can go get the plugin, go get Kevin's book explaining exactly how to use it and uh, some other stuff in there. So go check that out now. We'll be back in just a moment for the jam session. Thanks for listening. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Supadupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299. Or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Are you thinking about hiring professional mastering for your song or record? Chris Graham is a billboard chart-breaking mastering engineer who has mastered thousands of songs for both pro and home studio clients just like you. Send in your song and Chris will give you a free sample master of your mix. Book a project with Chris today and also get a free video mix consultation before mastering. This will help make sure your mixes are the best that they can be. So go to chrisgrammastering.com today and get your free sample started and your record finally finished. Just click the link included in the show notes. Hey, Rockstars, we're back. We're going to jump into the jam session now. I'm here with my guest, Kevin Becca from Blackbird Academy and Mix Magazine and many other great places. And um, Kevin, are you ready to jam? I'm ready to jam. Let's do it. Awesome, dude. Well, uh, when you started out in recording, what was holding you back? I think I was bullheadedly holding on to my dream of being a guitar player, a, a session player, which, you know, I mean... I got to study with Howard Roberts and Joe Pass and 
and Joe Diorio, and I went to the Dick Grove School of Music, and any other guitar player when I was on the road with bands, I'd, I'd literally ask somebody, like, who's the best guitar player in town? And I have Oklahoma City. Oh, it's this guy. Minneapolis. Oh, it's this guy. And I would just set up lessons, you know, and That's I would brilliant. study. Yeah, so it's just, just taking advantage of where I was. Also, at the time, much like you, I wanted to go to Berkeley, but as soon as my dad saw what it cost, it was just like, there is no way you're going to Berkeley. <laughs> So my heart was broken, but then I started corresponding with uh, William Levitt, who wrote all these great guitar books, and he was actually writing me letters, and, we'd, and I'd say, hey, so, you know, answer me this question or whatever, and he was gracious enough to write me back, and he sent me some guitar ensemble charts, and one of them was written by Claire Fisher, who was an incredible composer, and then I'd, I'd get a bunch of guitar players at my junior college and had a great jazz program. And then, uh, the, uh, you know, so I was basically studying anybody uh, with anybody I could do and practicing my butt off and just trying to be a better player and a reader and a composer. And, you know, I studied orchestration with a guy named Albert Harris and who knew all the guys, Artie Kane and all the orchestrators in L.A. And he had all these great stories about his career and he was teaching freelance, and then I rented a room from a, uh, a lyricist, and I was writing songs and doing these songwriting workshops with, with her. And then there was another songwriting workshop with uh, Jack Siegel, which had a lot of you know great people in there. So I was just kind of finding my way, honestly. So and still working day gigs too. So playing with bands at night, studying when I could, and I just didn't give it up. You know, because it's something that was ingrained in me from when I was a kid, from when I was 10. And it's one of those dreams that you hold on to until I finally saw, like, look, I could practice, you know, 24 hours a day and I'm never going to be as good as the guys I idolize, like Michael Landau or Michael Thompson or Steve Lukather or any of these guys, Dean Parks. They, these guys are technicians, they're artists, they know what they do and they do it well every day and they're awesome, you know? So, so instead I got to record with those guys. I mean, we had Dean Parks up at the house for Kenny's records. Steve Lukather came into Lighthouse and uh, Michael Landau came in, Michael Thompson came in, they all came in, you know, and I got to still kind of experience what they do at their level and then start learning how to record them, you know, which was a great way to keep my attachment to music. You know, I, I guess the underlying theme of my life has been music and I've gotten to share, uh, you know, the excellence of people either doing it on the recording level or the artist level. So I think if I had kind of just, you know, moved to recording sooner, but then again, maybe I wouldn't be where I am now, you know? So it's that whole thing like time travel, if I go back and meet myself and tell Man, myself you a wouldn't secret. Have, you wouldn't give up guitar. You would <laughs> You would not have played guitar all that time. So yeah, and I still, I still love the guitar. I don't play it much anymore. I still have the gear. In fact, I got a GrooveTube Solo 75 I'm trying to sell right now, my original amp. And it's just some kind of like not checking out, but I, I still love the instrument. And I tell you what, that gave me a lot of tools in the studio to, uh, it, it, you know, if the band came in, even in LA back in the day, and they said, you know, they're playing this song, and they go, man, we need a chart. And I would just raise my hand politely and as the assistant sitting in the back as a fly on the wall. Yeah. I can write a chart. That's great. Really, kid? Yeah. So I would just, you know, I said, uh, let me go find some paper. And um, and they went through it, and I sketched out a chart for them, and they used it on the session. And this That's is cool. with, like, Neil Steubenhaus and, and um, you know, all the great players that I was working with back then. So. All right. Well, so now um, how about sharing some of the best advice you received? I think the best advice I received recently, and this helps you look at life in a different way, is that blessings come from outside your comfort zone. Yeah. So there's times in your life where 
you're either thrown into a situation or you make a decision that kind of puts you in a space that is not a good one. And you've got to move past that and realize that you can learn from this and be better at something, you know, whether it's just life in general or it's a technique or, you know, I've, I've had situations where, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a lab class and I'm acting as the go-between and trying to show the students how to work with professionals and they're making my life difficult on some level, you know? What, the students or the professionals? No, the professionals. <laughs> so they come in, and it might be a, a grizzled veteran, and you try to explain to them, like, this is a learning environment, and we're trying to do... And they, you know, it's rare, but, you know, they're like, well, why can't we do this? And, and not do this, but why isn't this going faster, basically? Right, right. So, because I have to explain to these, you know, I just can't do it, you know, otherwise they're just not learning. So, yeah, yeah. so anyway, that kind of learning how to deal with that on a, in a friendly way and not be so frustrated by it and that kind of thing. So yeah, you're, you're the um, mediator between the person who has so much experience that they are expecting things to operate yeah. at a level way beyond most people and a student who's just learning this for the very first time. And to give credit to uh, most of the people that come through, they get it, you know, and they they take the time and is, you know even ask hey is it okay if I talk to the students about this work I'm like oh yeah yeah please I nice. you know I, I usually don't have to I, I usually might have to ask so well, let me ask you that so it's a great quote so blessings come from outside your comfort zone that yeah. was that was essentially it right so uh, do you ever find yourself and have you learned anything about when you feel like you're outside your comfort zone a little too long yeah <laughs> so I think. You know, you just got to take inventory and figure out how you can maybe talk to somebody else about it and try to get some resources for, you know, for instance, to keep my head straight, I use this app called Headspace. It's this guy named Sean Puttycomb hmm. who started this great thing. My wife works for Mayo Clinic and she heard about it from one of the doctors and it's an app. It's a meditation app, basically. And you go in and this guy has the most pleasant voice. And this guy's background is incredible. He was uh, from the UK and he decided to go to Tibet and be a monk for 10 years. And then when he came out, he got a degree in circus arts. Wow. Yeah. So go figure, right? And he's an incredible juggler. He, he has a TED Talk that'll blow your mind. So he started with two other guys, this app, and now there's tens of thousands of people using it. And they're, I think they're doing $50 million a year in revenue. Hey, from, that's pretty good. That's probably a, better than juggling. From, <laughs> from a, or a circus, yeah. Especially or being when, a monk. What do you mean ringling's not going to do? Yeah. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah. Or being a monk, yeah, which is no money. So, but his background and everything. So, things like that, you know, just trying to keep your, your head together and trying to uh, navigate through a world that is sometimes not very friendly or I hate to get all existential on this podcast. Existentialism but. is a good tool to be uh, comfortable with, I think. Yeah. If you're going to work so hard on, on creating music. Yeah, because uh, it's part of the creativity too. So so that, that, that wellspring of creativity comes from your soul. And then if your soul is blocked by something else that's not serving you and you got to move on, that can be difficult and put yourself out of your comfort zone. And once you figure that out and then you move on to the next level and then you're doing something that maybe you haven't done before. You yeah. Know? So, all right. Well, let's get into creativity. Can you share with the rock stars a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something that they could use on their next session today? So, I would say this is one of the cooler things that I learned from Vance Powell. So, we were talking about, you know, Vance is really 
thinks about recording in a completely, that's what I love about him, completely different way than anybody else. So he, we were talking about how to use distortion, especially on a vocal. So the, the trick he used, and I can't remember, I think it was Allison Janney and the record she did with Jack White, which was, I can't remember the name of the record. But Vance said, okay, well, here's what I do. I use a, you know, a microphone of choice, SM7, 47, you name it. And I put, I record that directly to the track. And then next to that mic, I have another mic. I've been using a copper phone. I don't know if you know that mic. It's a I do. Yeah, I've seen, I see them in uh, tape op ads. I think. Yeah. So I have a copper phone and you can also use a green bullet, you know, which you can kind of, you have to duct tape it to something because there's no real stand mount. Right. And then that goes to an isolated guitar amp that's set to a little bit of a distortion thing or a lot. And then that's recorded to a second track. And then you can kind of mess with that and play with it and, and come in. And one of the cooler things we did was there was this guy, he wanted to sing this really breathy part, you know? So he says, I really need this breathy part. And by itself, it wasn't working. So what I did was I did this technique and I cranked the crap out of the, uh, and compressed it with two compressors, the, the distorted one. But the problem was that any time that he, you know, had phrases with long gaps and, you know, the, the compressors would bring up my noise right, floor. Right, right, so I put the, um, how strip silence works is that if there's two tracks that are similar and you strip silence the top one and they're grouped, right? The top one will take precedence over the bottom one. Oh, nice. So what I did was I went in and where the gap was really not, you know, not noisy on the original track, I stripped that. And then instead of stripping it out uh, of the top track, I would go down and drive that down with a semicolon key, drive that selection down, and then I'd strip the distorted one. Yeah. So that what that gave me was the breath was super present during the track, but anytime he took a break in between words, I wouldn't have this horrible, you know, noise floor coming up and killing me. So. So the distorted track would essentially just go away. Yeah, it would go away, and I did a nice fade at the end of it, you know, either end. But what was cool was with the strip silence feature, I could go through really quickly and isolate the gaps and then take those selections and break them with a with the B key. And then I would have all these sections, and I would just take those, I would select it, I would hit semicolon, it would drive the, I had to ungroup the tracks, move the selection down to the distorted one, hit delete, move on to the next guy, select it, semicolon, delete, select, semicolon, delete, and you can get really fast at it. So Yeah. Well, that's cool. And I like that. Another way to kind of roughly do that would be to sidechain a gate on the distorted track from the clean track. But the problem with sidechaining a gate is there's a lot of what-if factors in the middle of the song where little things might come in. It might pop in and out at the wrong way. Yeah. So using the, um, the, the strip silence is a quick way to sort of really dial it in. Yeah, and you can really fine-tune the fades and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Too, so. All right, cool. Um, now, how about a uh, hardware tool, something you you either love having on a session or just you're excited about? Um, hardware tool would be, I guess, the you know, the Magnum K compressor is one to study because it's a new thing. It's actually a compressor, a limiter, and a, a parallel EQ that's all in one signal chain, and to use it like that, I, I think that is an incredible thing. But in the, in the in the bigger picture, I've been doing taking Andrew Shep's parallel compression tips from his mix template and doing it live. Oh, cool! With with outboard gear. With outboard gear. So, for instance, he does a what he calls the kick snare crush when he mixes. I do a kick snare crush when we track, and basically sending the kick and the snare out a bus, a single bus, going to like a, maybe a DBX one hundred and sixty or something like that, 
and then dialing it in. So I'm just barely tapping it and then use that to bring, to sneak up under the kick and the snare, which, mm -hmm. and if it's, we do so many chains. There's a, it's about four or five different chains I do. I do an overall kit crush. I do a tom crush and I do a kick snare crush. And then I do a rear bus crush, which is everything. Let me think, see if I can remember. It's everything but drums and vocals. Nice. So it's all the kind of floaty stuff, you know, guitars, maybe some keys. I would also take backgrounds out of that background vocals. So that's like the track, the bed track. And it's also stuff that's not going to change later for the most part if, and once you nail it. And then because if you have, you know, a vocal that's going to be overdubbed, then that track is a throwaway. So I basically kind of you suss out what I'm going to send to that. Well, he calls it the rear bus because he uses a Neve uh, 8078 like we do. And the, the rear, you know, the left and right rear bus has its own fader. You Which know? is part of quad? Yeah, part of the quad situation, but at Blackbird, our front and rear bus now are A and B stereo bus options. Right. So anyway, I use that rear bus the same way he does, but then it has everything that I think is going to be solid to the mix. You know. So interesting. Yeah, and then very I, cool. And the the cool part about getting that at the tracking is you're hearing that ex added excitement element yeah. to your music right off the bat. And to just to be clear, it doesn't take much. And when you're folding that in, if you're hearing it, it's too much. It's so just a you, teeny, you, teeny you bit. You just need to bring it up so it's it's that you miss it if it's gone. But when it's in, it does something incredible, and in that it's not overpowering what's already there. And Very that's, cool. I think the secret to that parallel stuff, anyway. So. Very cool. Right on. Uh, great tip. Um, now, this is a next question is asking you about a favorite software tool or something you're excited about right now. We kind of know that we're excited about. Yeah, Rin is great. I'll tell you what, I'm most excited about Revoice Pro. I think that bang for the buck, especially the student rate, which is 50% off or just in general. I mean, I, I use Melodyne, I use Autotune, but with Revoice, you get Vocaline and you get a great tuning software that I think is really intuitive and sounds fantastic. I mean, it's really, it's really friendly to the ear, which some of these get a little grainy, you know, and especially with at, at a standard sample rate, I think, but it sounds fantastic. It maintains the quality of the recording and it gives you some tools that you can really subtly tune, tune something. I mean, there's, there's room for, you know, brutal nuclear tuning right. in the, in on the track if you if it needs to be there on a pop tune or whatever but for the most part i try to make it so you don't hear the tuning yeah you know let me ask a tough question about tuning because you already shared a tip where we're going to parallel record a clean vocal mic plus a distorted guitar amp and you can create this great unique tone that you're like ah, oh, it's wonderful but then somewhere later in the process you think oh, shoot, I really need to tune my vocals before yeah. we get to mix. Will Revoice, or do you have any other good tips for keeping those two tracks together through the tuning process? Yeah, so generally where I use that kind of parallel two-mic approach is on a singer that I'm comfortable with. I'm not going to do a lot of tuning. And I'm maybe tuning a note they hold where it drifts a little bit, and I'll try to go in there. Generally, the distorted stuff doesn't tune very well. I don't care what you're using just because it's too, it's probably too complex. You know, the way uh, the, the, uh, especially when you're compressing the crap out of it, like we do. So I wouldn't use that on something where I'm going to have to work with a singer where it's going to be, you know, a really a time consuming 
place to go at the end, you know? That might be might make more sense to tune the clean vocal and then just redistort that. After yeah, the exactly. At a later date, which yeah. you can do easily. Yes. All right, cool. How about a resource for the business side of doing music? If somebody wants to do this, not just for a hobby. Yeah. They got to make a living at it. Do you have any resources? Do you have any online I would say advice? personally, I think you really got to know how to run your own business and do your own taxes, you know? So whatever resource you use, Mark Rubel is a great resource for that because he's done it for so many years and that's who covers it with the students. Um, I haven't been freelance for many years, but having a good tax guy is incredibly essential. I've had the same tax guy for, I don't know, 20 years that my parents used. And he gets my setup. He just, you know, I, I recently asked him, say, what happens if I sell this thing, you know? Is well, you know, you've been taking depreciation on that for, and I'm like, stop, just you don't think it's a good idea, right? And he goes, not really. And I said, don't worry, I, I agree. So because uh, because you know, like my, my mix my mix gig is a is a freelance gig and it's cash, you know, that I tell the government I'm getting and that I pay taxes on, you know, and then I actually fold my Blackbird gig is actually a traditional job, you know, where they take taxes out, etc. So what I do is save extra money out of that paycheck to pay the taxes on the other thing. Because at the end of the year, if you don't do that, you get a, a tax bill for $8,000 and you're just going, where am I going to get this money? And then you're paying on time and it's, you know, not a good thing. So you just got to find the place where all that works and then have somebody who's more knowledgeable than you. If you've ever looked at the tax code, it's ridiculous if you have your own business and you're trying to make things yeah, work. Yeah, so. you may want to spend more time focusing on how to get a great mix than... How yeah. To, and then, yeah, that's taxes. the other thing is, you know, I mean, I keep records of all my transactions and all, all the things that, you know, receipts and things like that, which I then put into a spreadsheet as they happen. That's the other, that's probably the biggest tip right there. So what I do is I create a spreadsheet from my previous year's taxes where like, you know, my expenses on income, whether it be rental properties or, or, you know, studio, you know, money, a project I've taken on the side or my mixed magazine gig or my, you know, expenses. If I buy something, it's part of my business. And so at the end of the year, this is all to totaled up. And I just set, literally send that to my tax guy. So I'm not piling through receipts at the end of the year. I'm literally taking this kind of like RIN would work. That's the RIN lesson. You know, you do your credits as you go along. You don't right, wait to the end right. of the project. So it, as long as you keep track of that, and as I gotten better at it, it's not such a painful experience at the end of your like you got to take a day and you got to sit down with this pile a of receipts and lucky. what was that and this thing's faded and it's on it used crappy to take me paper. a week. Oi. Yeah, it's it's horrible. So I just say find a great tax guy and keep your records as you go and I know you got to pay this tax guy it might be 4 or 500 bucks to do your taxes but you will save that over the long run no doubt about it. Yeah. Good advice. All right. So now how about an organizational online resource? Is there anything that you use that you really I think Backblaze like? is awesome. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an online file saving, uh, you know, backup service that's online all the time as you work and you can set, you can throttle how much bandwidth it gets. So if it's kind of slowing you down and you can see the screen kind of doing a thing that you don't like, or you can just wait till a later time and when you're on a bigger bandwidth. You can probably schedule it to just Yeah, you do can it schedule it too. And then it's 50 bucks a year unlimited. Mm. And I think what the benefit for Backblaze is, that's, there's another great resource here, is that Backblaze, through all the drives they backed up, because they, they, I guess they can tell what type of drive it is. If you type in drive stats Backblaze on Google, you'll get this incredible list of what drives have the, the highest and lowest failure rates by company. 
HGST, Seagate, Lassie, et cetera, et cetera. And they go down by model number, like the HGST, you know, Western Digital, whatever, 2 TB, 2 terabyte, had, you know, 0.06 drive failures over this many hours. And you have mm-hmm. to do a little study because if it's low hours with high failure rates, that's obviously a bad thing. But if it's if it's high with high or high with medium, it might be the same failure number, but it's many more hours of use, you know? Right. So there's nothing worse than buying a drive and three months later have it take a dump, which they'll send you a new one. But what about all the data that was on it? Oh, yeah, totally. So so now Backblaze will just back up stuff in the background and then it's living. You go to the sort of a browser tab to go find the stuff later. Yeah, you can find it, which you can download it by piece if you want, if you have a failure or, and this is where you can buy a drive for them from them that they will put your entire and backup on and send it to you. That's cool. So, so is a typical way to use it to say, I'm going to have my work drives in the studio. I'm going to have my archive drives that I move projects to. But meanwhile, they're all connected to Backblaze and they're backing up. Yeah. And I'm only using Backblaze if I get in trouble somewhere. That's it. And you hope to never use it. Right. It's like health insurance or car insurance, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and you can choose what drives get backed up and even what folders get backed up. So if it's like, for instance, your Pro Tools session folder, yes. If it's my tax folder, yes. But if it's my, I don't even know what it would be, like maybe my temporary... Your, your folder of cat pictures. Yeah, exactly. So something like that, you just go, look, I got a backup here. I don't need Backblaze to chunk away on this thing, so... It's just a nice way to have, you know, uh, at Blackbird, we teach, unless you have three distinct copies of something, it's not a backup or or an archive. Yeah. So. All right. Well, so um, last question or two questions here, and they're both hypothetical. The first one is to imagine that you were starting all over again, which you've already done a few times. Uh But if you needed a simple setup to record music with, you wanted to find people to record music with, and you needed to make ends meet while you were doing it. I imagine this is the kind of advice that you're giving to your students as yeah. they leave school. Yeah. Um, what What would you use to record with? How would you find people? What's the advice about making ends meet? Okay. So I do a column. I did a column that's going to be in August mix called The Cost of Quality. And I've been preaching this for years where somebody will ask me, okay, what's the best, you name the gear, for you know under this amount? I'm say, I always say you're asking the wrong question. What you need to ask yourself is what is the best, not what I can, can I afford, because that gets into the whole money thing, which is, is, is important, but, and this is getting outside your comfort zone sometimes too, but it pays off every time. So I always say like, what's the best, tell, tell them to ask, what's the best piece of gear for me now at this point in my career that I can, that I can grow with, right? So let's say, for example, I buy a set of speakers because I can afford it they're under $300 and, you know, somebody said they sounded great on a website or whatever. I get them home, I start mixing with them and either, you know, quickly or worse, slowly realize that it's, it's hampering my progress. I'm making bad decisions. My mixes sound like crap when I take them to anywhere else and it's slowing me down. And then I figured out and I sell that thing at a loss. And then I go ahead and buy the thing I should have gotten in the first place which now costs more money because I'm adding in the loss I took and the money and the time I wasted, which is there's no compensation for time. Right. You get, you know, you only have so much. 
So my advice is to buy the thing that's best for you at the time. And that takes research. It takes talking to people. It takes, you know, going and listening at a studio. There's all, in this town, there's great things like Genelec now has a permanent residency at Addiction where you can go listen to their products. Go to Vintage King, listen to speakers there. Talk to different engineers. What do you like? Why do you like it? What, what, what does this do for you? You know, yeah. I love the sound of your mixes. What do you use? You know, and I remember, is, you know, back in the day with stereo stores, component stereo stores, I was oh, same yeah. thing. I'd just go and I'd listen to all the speakers there. Mm-hmm. You have the speaker switch. Yeah. Yeah. So you can go in and you can do some research and don't make the first judgment, uh, you know, knee-jerk decision based on a review you read on a, especially on a... Unless Kevin wrote it. Unless I wrote it, of course. But, but you know what I mean? There's so many opinions now and there's, uh, who is this person? You know, it's like, I put a lot of stock in what Russ Hughes does at Pro Tools Expert. He's a super smart guy. I think Hugh Robjohns at Sound on Sound is an incredible reviewer and a technical genius, you know. He's a really, really smart guy. Those are the guys I respect and that I listen to, you know. Larry Crane, a tape op, who's a buddy, he says, oh, man, the so-and-so is great. I just saw him at NAMM and we're talking gear, you know. We we did a couple junkets. We did a trip to Montreal where we just listened to great audio and uh, uh, audio plus services invited us up. So anyway, those are the people. Find guys you respect. Yeah. You know, and, find voices. And trust that, your own ears if you get a chance to listen to it. Because I've had people tell me about stuff, but sometimes I walk into a place and you get, get to listen to yeah. a pair of speakers or something, and instantly I'm just like, well, this is great. I love this. You yeah. Know? This makes me want to go make a record. Yeah. So, and, and it, once again, that gets to your passion for music. If you're, if you're doing something and it's translating and you're, you're, you're growing with it, then it's served you. If it's not, then you've made the wrong decision and you've wasted your time. Right. All right. So, all right. So now how about finding people to make music with? What's your advice for people? So I loved your story about your podcast, driving people to your studio. Yeah, that's right. I was rock stars. I was telling Kevin that this next month, um, every project that's booked in here is actually somebody that's come to me through the podcast itself, Yeah, which was, um, you know, not a thing I've been pushing for specifically, but it's just really great to hear that that kind of networking effect has introduced me to a lot of new people. Yeah. So, okay. So you've got a hundred episodes in the can. Five years ago, did you ever think you'd have a podcast? Definitely not five years ago. I probably discovered podcasts five years ago. Yeah. And they've been around for longer than five years. So it's just one of those things that you've got to, you know, you you being a freelancer and anybody else out there, all the rock stars being freelancers, you know, on some level, I'm a freelancer with my mix work and my editorial work. And I've done written product manuals for companies and they've approached me and said, hey, do you mind doing some editing for us? Or can you write this story under a pseudonym? And that's usually my suggestion because I'm saying like, nobody wants my name on something that they think is coming from me because of maybe there's conflict of interest, but I do have a voice and I will make it make sense. And I'm not going to bang my own drum because I'm an anonymous person, you know? So, um, it just is a beautiful thing to be able to have a voice. And, and so I, so anyways, that's the point is that you have to find your own angle and it might involve you doing things that you would never imagine. Right. Right. Well, I like how you're answering these questions, not making assumptions about what somebody wants to do with their stuff, but leaving it kind of open-ended. You know, it's like two people might want to record very different styles of music in very different ways. You uh-huh. know, the same two people might want to meet people that are totally different from each other. Yeah. You know, and then what about making ends meet? What do you feel like is a good answer for people as far as that goes? I think that no matter who you're talking to, 
they're going to potentially grapple with the idea that I, I could take a job that has nothing to do with where my passion is, or I could take one that is only where my passion is. Yeah. Now, if you have the, that opportunity, sometimes you don't. So, for example, if you need to keep a job to keep you in a city, for instance, where the industry is happening. So in the 80s, for me, in the 70s, it was Los Angeles. And I took literally any job I could find that would keep me there, right? So I was playing in bands, but that you can't rely on that work. So, uh, and sometimes you can't rely on bands. Sometimes the band breaks up. What? Like, really? Like, yeah. Well, Some bands I, are unreliable? What do I do, you know? <laughs> so, um, or club owners or whatever was happening at the time. So I, I had a job at a hotel. I was a busboy. I was a uh, bellhop. I would work for a clothing company as an assistant buyer. I worked as a messenger. You know, I messengered stuff around. There's some great stories there too, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you just do what you do. And what that gave me was the ability and the money to stay in Los Angeles where I could study with at the Dick Grove School or I could go over to Jack Siegel's workshop or Phyllis Mullinery's uh, song workshop or I could do the things I was doing to feed my soul and and learn and forward my craft, you know? And then I was, then I'd take off and do a, uh, build a recording studio. So uh, a version of that for me was when I moved to Nashville, I knew I wanted to go to Middle Tennessee State University for their program. And I also knew that I could really afford to go if I was a Tennessee resident. Mm -hmm. So I needed to live here for a year before I was technically a resident and be able to do it. So my first job in Nashville was salad bar guy. I was working in a building downtown. Yep maintaining the salad bar yep. with a starch shirt on every day. Yeah, so there you go. So, and uh, I have a student who now works at Capitol. His name's Diego Relis. He just called me yesterday with a technical question about the Roland SBX-1 box. He was firing a bunch of synths and couldn't figure out how to make it work from Pro Tools, which we put a dent in it, but I, I got to call him today and see if he figured it out, But because I'm dying to know too. So um, anyway, he I remember him coming at me when he was in school, and this is like four years ago now, and said, you know, I'm thinking about, he had dual Canadian citizenship, U.S. citizenship, and he said, I'm thinking about moving to Saskatchewan with my girlfriend, or I might it was a small town in Canada. I said, why are you going there? He goes, well, there's a studio. I said, well, let's look at it online. And it was an owner-operator studio, and it was not a bad thing, but I said, look, man, this person is running this himself as a revenue stream. And if there's no room for you, then what do you do? You know, and you get one shot at doing something once, and then you got to start over if you, especially, and I learned this from going from LA to Phoenix with a nice list of credits and nobody cared. So he said, okay. And he moved to LA and he started working with, uh, he met Nico Bolas at the school and Nico kind of took him under his wing and got him in at Capital as a, we got him into Capital as a runner with Paula and then as an assistant engineer, and then they hired him. EMI hired him, which yeah. is a big deal because EMI is like big corporate, you know, deal. So you sign contracts and you do, you know, there's a, it's a big hurdle to get in there and he's there and he's still there, you know? So keep yourself in a city where what people, it's like Tony Robbins, whoever's doing what you're doing, go to that person and either emulate them or study with them, talk to them, figure it out. And that goes in the city level too. Don't move to Yuma, Arizona if you're trying to be a recording professional because maybe you have family there and friends and your girlfriend's there, but there is no business there. So. Interesting. All right. Well, now uh, here comes the last question. Okay. So this is 
hypothetical as well. We're going to take the Wayback Studio machine. This is the one I love, actually. I read <laughs> this. This. Is, this is where you're going to go back in time, yeah. and we're going to find young Kevin, and yeah. you're going to tap yourself on the shoulder, yeah. spin around, say, what are you doing here? And you say, I've come to give you this one bit of advice. Right. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yeah. yourself one day. And that's to... Even though my life has been a series of moves through, through uh, you know, outside my comfort zone, it's don't, I don't know if you've seen the movie Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. It's incredible. I don't know if I've seen that. that. Everybody should watch that. So it's basically, don't let your fear guide your decisions, you know? So every time I've made a poor decision, it's been based on, or had a bad experience, it's been based on frustration and fear. And I think if you can figure out how to not, have that happen and that's not easy you know so um i think that confidence not overconfidence but confidence and the calm ability to wade through a difficult time and that's something you have to learn by doing it is going to serve you better down the line than not so nice and actually that wasn't the question i was thinking of i, w I wanted the recording chain you said if you move i can't think we kind of didn't go into it but if there was a recording chain yeah, yeah. Well, tell us about a recording chain yeah so i would i would say that it would depend on what i was recording so uh for instance if i was doing some high-end recording like if i was trying to capture a you know move to a town and they say okay you know there's a symphony orchestra here and i would think to myself well maybe they need somebody to record them you know what would you do i would just settle on a really clean recording chain i would record to Pyramix at a high sample rate through uh, DAD converters, emerging technology stuff. I would get a happy HAPI interface on a laptop and go and do that, you know. But if I was doing a situation where I had to build a studio that was going to be viable, and I'm looking at all your great gear here too, I would actually get, get Pro Tools HD and I would get probably a, you know, a 192 or a new HDIO and use that. And then I would get some really great microphones that wouldn't have to be expensive for like an SM7, a MarTech MSS10, some kind of some kind of vocal chain that I could live with and that would generally sound great. And the SM7 kills a lot of bigger mics that we use at Blackbird re regularly and is a surprising mic for, I think, $500. Yeah. Or so. I don't know what it is about the SM7 that it always keeps coming up. Yeah. And then my favorite mic that was uh, that I reviewed in the last three years is the AT5045, which is a side address rectangular capsule mic they made that is incredible. It is so natural sounding. I've used it across a number of things. Hand percussion, piano, drums, toms, overheads, rooms, and it's it, they are incredible. They're not cheap, but I, th I would say if you're investing in a one high quality stereo pair of mics, that would, that would be uh, an option I would consider. Nice. AT 4055. 5045. 5045. The 5040 is that four capsule rectangular vocal mic. The 5045 is a, a single rectangular capsule that's a side address. And the rectangular capsule gets you all kinds of benefits over a, a round capsule. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know anything about that. Incredible. Cool. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, so Kevin, thank you so much again for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. A lot of great stories and a lot of great insights into recording, organization, going to school, and very importantly, another wonderful introduction to Rin M, the plugin that you can use in your DAW now that will help you begin to 
you know, take, take credit for all the work that you're doing, mm -hmm. whether you're just starting out or whether you've been doing this for years and you want to just start making sure your credits are in there. Um, we didn't even bring this up, but I suppose it's entirely possible to go back and start a RIN M and actually put in all the proper credits for a previous recording Yep, and just start collecting that because there's a good chance there's going to be a place for you to send that to at some point where, where that info can go into the system, yep. even retroactively. So. Or it'd be a great job for an intern. Or a great job for an intern. <laughs> and Rockstars, once again, if you would like to go check out the plugin, Kevin's wonderful book, and whatever else we've got for you there, go to rsrockstars.com slash RIN, R-I-N, and pick that up right now. Kevin, how can listeners find you, follow you? You can follow uh, follow me on Facebook. Uh, Kevin, Just type in Kevin Becca. I'll come right up. And you can see kind of like my latest column and mix. And I do some, uh, I, my wife and I are very much into animal rescue, especially dogs. So you'll see the latest news there. And you can also stay in touch with me. I'll answer any question at any time. And I would love to hear from people and uh, be friends with them or just actually interface with them because there's, you know, it's a great way to network. And um, I will tell people also that there's a great event coming up next year, next summer that is to keep your eye on. It's going to be a audio engineer driven cycling adventure to raise money in a big way for uh, music cares and other charities, including spinal damage issues and things like that. Wow, I, I, It's a beautiful day in Nashville today. I was thinking about taking my bike out and going for a ride. Rockstars. Also, if you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, you can find that at rsrockstars.com slash FB. And um, we've got a, a group. It's a private group, but just ask to join it. And Kevin, I'm going to send you an intro or an invitation to come join I us. I will join. Too. It's a great place to have conversations with everybody and say hi. So Kevin, once again, thanks very much, man. Thanks. I look forward to seeing more of you around the studio and, and in print. Thanks for having me. And I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.